It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. If you're there, would you say amen or something? Let me know you're there. All right. Romans chapter 3, verse number 25. The second part of verse number 25 through verse number 31. Last week, we studied verse 21 to the middle of verse number 25. And we saw this really important word at the end of verse number 25, talking about Jesus Christ whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. The word propitiation, if you'll remember, is the word mercy seat. Um, it is a mercy seat. It's a covering over the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the word propitiation literally means this, that Christ paid the price for your sin debt and he paid the price to himself. It's a powerful word. Theologians will use this word as well just to help you enjoy theological terminology, expiation, where expiation literally means a covering, a covering of our sin. The death of Jesus Christ covers your and my sin if we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Well, why does that matter? Well, there are two basic worldviews when it comes to, if you will, religion. There's the worldview of what is called human achievement. And some of you today believe in human achievement. What is human achievement? That if I do enough, uh, if I keep the standards, if I keep the rules, if I keep the requirements and expectations in doing that, I will prove my worth, I will prove my value. In other words, my effort would save me. That's human achievement. I've gone to confession. I went on a mission trip. I uh, prayed to the trees. I I offered sacrifice. Whatever the issue is, human achievement is I bring value to the table. That's human achievement. And then we, there's a second view. It's called divine accomplishment. This is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what verse 25, the first part, is talking about. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is biblical Christianity. Human achievement, there's something I have to offer. Divine accomplishment, there is nothing I have to offer. Salvation is entirely a work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's entirely a work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is biblical Christianity. You say, well, I, I, I think I could be a Christian and not believe in divine accomplishment. No, you can't. I don't mean to be rude, and I certainly don't want to be unkind to you, but I do want to be honest with you and tell you that biblical Christianity demands only divine accomplishment and gives zero latitude when it comes to human achievement. You and I bring nothing to the table. That's what verse 24 and 25 teach us. It's very, very clear. Well, pastor, if, if I mean, but I, I mean, I, I, I do these things. That's great. But you bring nothing to the table. 
table. Salvation is 100% a work of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. The propitiation, the substitutionary payment, the mercy seat, the atonement, all of these words that we've been looking at through the book of Romans point us to one fundamental reality. Listen to this. One fundamental reality. The only way that you and you could ever be saved or I could ever be saved is by putting our faith and trust in Christ alone. Only one way. Only one way. Verse 25 says this. Whom God has set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood last week. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sin that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare his righteousness. You've probably heard folks say this. How could or why would God allow this to happen? You, you fill in the blank with whatever this is. Why would God allow war to happen? Why would God allow the death of an infant to happen? Why would God allow this to happen to an innocent child? Whatever the case may be, we've, you've probably uh, heard people ask that question. And if you're truthful, even if you're a believer, you've asked yourself that question. I know I have. God, why would you allow these things to happen? I've asked that. Why did the Dodgers beat the Padres? I don't know. Why would you allow that to happen on a silly front? But there's some serious issues that we ask that question of, isn't it? Why is a child born to this kind of parent who won't care for them? Why is there an abusive situation? I mean, we could just go on and on with the illustrations that we would ask. God is not indifferent to the claims of justice, but he is very patient or forbearing towards the sin of many in the Old Testament, the questions that's being asked in verse number 25, and even to people in our world today. It would have been unjust for God to leave guilty people unpunished, for sure. But make no mistake, God does not leave the guilty unpunished, but it must be realized that the punishment that all mankind deserves fell on Jesus Christ. Those that God justified in the Old Testament, he justified on the basis of Christ's death on Calvary. All Old Testament people who were saved, a Bible term, they were saved because of what Christ would do on Calvary's cross. All people in the church age, the age we live in today, are saved because of what Christ did on the cross. They looked at what he was going to do. We look at what he has already done. And the righteousness of God is met and his patience is met because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. You see somebody today and you're like, how could God allow that person to, again, fill in the blank, because he is patient and loving and kind and aren't you and I glad that he is patient? Because if he wasn't patient, he wouldn't be patient with you or me. And if he wasn't patient, I would have been snuffed out as a 10-year-old kid. And all I would have ever known is the state of Washington. And that's from bad to worse. Verse number 26. Just we're working our way to the big idea of this text. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. To declare, I say, or to make known at this time his righteousness. God, passing over the sin of the Old Testament saints, may to some people, again, Paul is dealing with this, may have appeared unjust. 
But we see that is not the case. Throughout that period, God had in mind the events of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross. We must understand that God will never be unjust. He cannot be unjust. All sin will be punished if it is not paid for by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, how is he just? Well, people who put their faith and trust in Christ, he is the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. He's just in this way. That Christ paid, we're going to give some, some theological terms here, don't get scared, that he might be just. Christ took the punishment which was due for others. Well, who's the others? You and me. Well, what's that substitution look like? Eternal damnation to hell. He said, Pastor, you're saying Jesus went to hell? No, no, because of his perfection, because he's the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, his blood washes away all of our sin. When he said it was finished upon the cross, he did not have to go to hell and suffer any longer. He did not, some people say, he had to go to hell to deposit our sin there. There's absolutely no theological uh, uh, foundation for that at all. Well, where did the sin go of mankind? Under the blood of Jesus Christ. It was covered by his blood. His death on the cross finished the suffering that he would go through. He did not have to go to hell for three days and suffer. If he had, then the cross would not have been finished. People say, no, no, salvation was settled on the cross. No, if you remember your Bible very well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is very clear on this. The Gospel of John is very clear on this. Salvation was settled at the resurrection. Remember Paul saying to the church at Corinth, if there be no resurrection, then we are all men most miserable because we are without hope. Because if Christ did not rise from the dead, then are all dead. There's no hope apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That where, that's where salvation was finally settled. On the cross, his suffering was dealt with. Sin's debt was, was paid, but it was sealed or completed at the resurrection. And Christ became the, or God became the justifier of all men who would put their faith and trust in him. But Paul says, I declare that he is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. I'm so thankful today for a man named Jason who put his faith in Christ. He believed in Christ this morning at the end of the 830 service. We rejoice in that. He went from being lost to now justified. He went from being guilty to now, because of the sacrifice of Christ and the blood that was placed on him, of being uh, uh, not innocent, but the penal sacra or the penal requirement had been paid or has been paid because of Jesus Christ. In other words, let me simplify it. Dude was on his way to hell. Now he's on his way to heaven, not for anything he's done, but everything for what Jesus has done. And it's not exclusive to him. Christ, death, burial, resurrection, salvation is available to anyone who will put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Well, because of God's grace, his forgiveness the fact that he alone is the source of our forgiveness and redemption. We see in verse number 27, 
the foolishness of bragging about your salvation. The foolishness of bragging about your salvation. Where is boasting then? Boasting means a satisfaction with with your achievement. Oh, I'm saved. I'm redeemed. Look at me. Look how good I am. Here's what the Jews were doing. You remember the church at Rome was comprised of two different groups of people primarily, at least as far as their heritage goes and their lineage. You had the Gentiles, which are comprised of people from all over the world. And you had the Jews, which would have been comprised of people basically from Israel or the tribe of Abraham. And and the people from uh, the tribe or the people of Abraham, Abraham's descendants as they would call themselves, they would boast in the fact that they were saved. They would boast in the fact that they knew the Lord. They would boast in the fact that they were part of the, the chosen people, that they were, they were content with themselves. They, they were satisfied with their achievement. Like, look at me, look at my family, look who I am, look how good I am. And Paul, Paul says here very clearly, where is boasting then or Why would you ever boast about something like that? Why would you ever do that? There's no, here's what Paul said. There's no place for that in the life of the believer. You brought nothing to the table. You didn't even make the decision to come to Christ based on your own wisdom. God drew you to himself. You couldn't have been saved if there wasn't conviction. We make this statement all the time, no conviction, no conversion. If the Spirit of God is not convicting you through the preached Word of God, through the written Word of God, through hearing about God, through nature that points you to God, apart from God working on your heart, you would have never been saved. So often when it comes to human achievement, we want folks to know how wonderful we are, don't we? I mean, people, people in their life will give money and they'll build hospitals and colleges and one of the requirements in order to do that is that they have to name the the business center at the university or the business building or the medical wing after the philanthropist that donated the money why because people want to make sure that people know who it was that gave the money or did the great act of service or whatever the case may be we want our names to be known. It's kind of ingrained in us. <laughs> Men will mow the lawn twice a year. And when they do, what do they do? They run out, they grab their wife. Honey, come and look what I've done. It's, it starts as kids, doesn't it? I mean, little kids, two-year-old boys, they clean the room. What do they want? They want mom to see. They want dad to see. Mama, come and look. I'll tell you this. There's no words better than my mom saying, good job, son. There's no worse words than my mom saying, your sister could have done better than that. You want somebody to compliment you. We want that boasting. It's kind of in our nature. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying it, it is in our nature. It, 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 it's something that, that is very clear. When it comes to our children, if our children turn out well, we want everybody in the world to know that it was something of us. Like, man, I really worked hard to raise good kids. Now, if our kids turn out complete losers, we never tell anybody about that. We, we, we try to make ourselves feel really good about it. But, I mean, that's just the nature of, of how we are. We are boasters by nature. And Paul is saying, where is boasting then? Well, where is it? It's, it's, it's excluded. It's kept out. It's shut out. 
It's prevented from being included. It's not allowed in the club. It's not allowed in the group. Boasting is not allowed to the true believer because we understand that there was nothing that we did to earn salvation and there's nothing we do to keep salvation, that it is entirely a work of Jesus Christ. Well, where is boasting then? It's excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. It's excluded? Is, it, is boasting excluded because of works, because of something that we do for moral or legal reasons? I mean, is it excluded? And Paul is being very clear here, and he's helping them to understand. Is, is, it, is it excluded for something that we do so that people know that we're moral or we're in legal good standing? Nay, in no way, but by the law of faith. See, we come back to this understanding that faith is strong confidence in or understanding the object and having reliance upon the Lord. In this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, his propitiation, all of these justification, all of this work that describes the Bible word for being saved. We have strong confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. So the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's through faith. There are some here today in the room, this morning, right now, you are here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Why have you not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because you've got questions. Can I let you know that you'll always have questions? Can I let you know that they'll, the book of Ecclesiastes says to the asking of questions, there is no end. Can I let you know that you'll never come to a point where you don't have questions? Can I let you in on a, a really important secret that you'll have questions for the rest of your life? Well, but I want all of my questions answered before I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Listen, faith is not the absence of questions. It's the strong confidence that Christ, the Son of God, will save you in putting your faith and trust in Him. That's why Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Make no mistake, you cannot be saved apart from faith. You can't be. But pastor, come on, I want my questions answered. We want to try to answer your questions, but can I tell you, as soon as we answer those questions, there'll be more questions. And when we answer those questions, there'll be more questions, and we'll answer those questions, and there'll be more questions, and on and on and on and on. Well, for how long will there be questions? There is no end. We have a daycare here, if you're a guest, we have a daycare that we started out, I don't know, seven years ago, and we love it, and we have a, a class, it's called a three-year-old class, and something happens to kids somewhere between two and a half and, and I think 25, and they just start asking why, 
And they, I love the three-year-old class, and, and I love every class that we have, but the three-year-old class, partly because my daughter teaches it, Judith teaches that class, and partly just because they're at such a fun age to mess with and have fun with, and, and they'll come over and they'll just start asking questions. Pastor, uh, uh, whose ball is that? And I, I mean, it's the daycare's ball, but I just mess around with them. It's mine. Why is it your ball? Because I bought it. Why? Well, because I'm really amazing. Why? Because it's how Jesus made me. Why? Because my mom said so. Why? About this time, I'm ready to lose my mind. I'm just trying to be funny, and I'm funny to myself for about five minutes, but then I'm irritated with myself. Like, why did I ask this question? So there'll be a couple of times where I'll start asking them, well, why are you asking that question? Well, because, Pastor, we just want to know why. Why? 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 And if, you didn't ever, if you've never seen a 49-year-old man converse with a three-year-old on a three-year-old's level, come watch me sometime. It's not impressive, but it is a reality. Why? Why? And you just go back and forth and three-year-olds can ask that question all day long to where you do what you promised yourself you would never do when you were growing up and you just end with this answer, because I said so. My daughter Judith and I this week went on a daddy-daughter vacation for a week to Central California. We had an awesome time and we stayed near Solvang and one of the, we had a lot of just dumb conversations, just not dumb, but just fun, enjoyable conversations, not, not a substance that we had those as well. And one of the conversations that we had was something like this, either this conversation or I just remember it, but I think it was on this trip that she's like, you know, I used to think you and mom didn't have any idea what you were doing. And I'm like, I would have never guessed. You're like your, your, your grandmother, my mother-in-law. Yeah, it's like, I get it. Yeah, I would have never guessed. And she's like, I find myself saying things to these kids where I'm the te- who I teach that you and mom said to me. I said so. That's why. Can I be honest with you? Here's what Paul is saying here. You're not going to have all of your questions answered. You have to come to Christ by faith. Hear me, by faith. Well, but I just, no, listen, if it's a sincere question, we want to answer it. And God has the answer and God's not, your questions aren't bigger than God. I promise. But don't think that you'll ever have every question answered. You must come to him by faith. By faith. The foolishness of thinking you bring anything to the table. Like, I tell you why I'm saved, because I'm from, you know, the south, or I'm from the north, or I'm this, or I'm that. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You bring nothing to the table. There's no reason to boast. Oh, but my daddy was a preacher. I was baptized by brother so-and-so in the creek behind the church. I've heard those things. That doesn't matter. That's of no value to God. God doesn't care if you're baptized in every creek in Louisiana and every lake in Minnesota. It's of no value. That does not give you any reason to boast. We do not boast in anything that we have. Then Paul continues as he works his way to the big idea where is boasting then it's excluded by what law of works nay but by the law of faith therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law 
justified by faith without the deeds of the law. You're saved not by what you do. You're saved by faith, verse 28. And then verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So the foolishness of boasting or bragging about your salvation. And then we see the arrogance of thinking God only cares about people like you. The arrogance of thinking God only cares about people like you. Is he the God of the Jews only? They were saying this in the church at Rome. We're Jews, we're special. He's not the God of the Gentiles. We're the special ones. Paul's like, no, 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 absolutely not. He's also the God of the Gentiles. Yes, of the Gentiles. Don't think that, that, that because you're, this is what Paul is saying to them, that because you're a Jew, you have some special place with God. Make no mistake at all that he is the God of the Gentiles also. The arrogance of thinking God only cares about people like you. I know the spirit of our church, but I want to take an opportunity to make application of this point for just a second and say this. God will save you and saves people regardless of where they're from. Let me say it again. God will save you regardless of where you're from. The Bible uses this phrase that in First Timothy chapter 2 that people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. Why does he use that word tribe? Well, in that day and still to this day in the Middle East, tribal loyalty is much more important than national loyalty. If, if you travel abroad and you meet people and they, they say, where are you from? Most of us would say, oh, I'm from the United States of America. Uh, then if they ask you where, you'd say, oh, I'm from California. Maybe you would say San Diego. But you would start out with a big picture of our national identity by and large. That's how we would do it. We have people from different countries in our church. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from, I'm from Samoa. I'm from Vietnam. I'm from Mexico. I'm from Australia. Wherever the case you might be, you, that's where we would say it. We would say it on a national level. Well, in Paul's day... Tribe was where your identity was held. Where are you from? Oh, my, and you'll hear this in different parts of the world. My tribe is this tribe. Or if you go to Southeast Asia, oh, I'm from this village. Same idea. I'm from this village. And so Paul is helping us to understand in, in 2 Timothy and here that, that God is not only the God of the Jews, but he is God of people everywhere from all places at all times. I've heard people say, well, pastor, I want to go to a church where people look like me. That's a pretty racist statement, by the way. In case you didn't hear me. That's a pretty racist statement, by the way. Well, pastor, where do you want to go to church? Uh, where it looks like heaven. What do you mean that? People from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. We used to sing a song. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. 
That's a true statement. He loves them all. That's what I want our church to look like. I don't care what color your skin is. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And if I follow him, I'm going to love you and care for you, pray for you, minister to you, be your pastor. And, and listen, if you have a hint of racism about you, this just isn't the church for you. I want a bigger amen there. This just isn't the church for you. You can take your racism back to hell where it's from. I don't care. And don't send me an email. Because I will not respond well to your garbage. There is no place for that in the eyes of God. All men are created in the image of God. And it's very, very clear. Well, I just want people to look like me. That look like me. Then, bro, go to a church with a mirror in front of it. It can be just you and Jesus. And he ain't going to be happy with you. So he will save you. Here's what verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? You can hear Paul's frustration in the verse. No, he's not the God of the Jews only, but yes, he's the God of the Gentiles. So he doesn't care where you're from. God doesn't care the color of your skin. He doesn't care how long you've been to church. He doesn't care how much money you have. Don't assume that God only wants to save people like you. He doesn't care the kind of job you have. Well, but I make a lot of money, so he's got to like me more. He doesn't care about your money. Matter of fact, you have a lot of money to prove that you don't give a rip about him. Because every week you're fighting whether or not to tithe. Oh, should I give God his tithe? Oh, I'd rather take a family. Okay, you, you, you have money to prove that God is not as important to you as you, you try to play off like he is. God doesn't care whether you've been vaccinated or not. You say, oh, I can't believe you just stepped into that one. I wrote it down. I plan to say it. He doesn't care whether you've been vaccinated or not. You say, well, what's our church's official position on it? Do what you like. That's Romans 14. You want to get vaccinated? I'll give you the shot. You don't want to get vaccinated? Great. It's up to you. Well, are you going to preach a message on it? I am. This is as much as I'll probably ever say. Do what you like. Well, Pastor, don't you think it's the mark of the beast? No. Well, how do you know it's not the mark of the beast? Because you'll know. Because that won't happen until the tribulation period. And we're not there. I don't care who the president is right now. That was a funny joke if you knew prophecy. i got to save that one for preacher's meetings. God doesn't care. I mean, I know churches that have split over wearing masks or not. You telling me that's not foolish? Juvenile? I would dare say borderline wicked. Is he the God of the Jews only? Here's what Paul is saying to them. You say, why are you dealing with it? Because the text is dealing with it. We're better because of who we are and where we're from. That was the attitude. That was the attitude of the folks. And Paul's going, you're not better because of who you are and where you're from. The ground is level at the cross. Well, well, I mean, 
my sin is not as bad as theirs. No, no. You're accepted by God. Your sins are forgiven regardless of your past if you put your faith and trust in Christ. There will be a day in time in Canyon Ridge, I hope real soon, and we have this happen all the time where we have gay people come to our church. And, so, and I get this question all the time. Am I allowed to come here? Well, where else are you going to go, bro? Of course. Yes, you're welcome here. And the saving grace of God that saved the adulterer will save the homosexual. Well, pastor, I heard somebody preach from Romans chapter 1 that, that, that gay people can't be saved. Well, you didn't hear your pastor preach it, and obviously the person who preached it has no idea what Romans chapter 1 is talking about. And yes, please send them this message because they, have, they are theologically inept and abusive on every level. From a salvific perspective, all sin is sin before God. All sin condemns mankind to hell. All sin is forgiven by Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And all who believe in Jesus Christ, the text is very clear, will be justified because of their faith in Christ alone. Well, what are we going to do if we have transgender people come to our church? Share the gospel with them. You're not going to ask them to leave? No, and I'm not going to ask the adulterer to leave and the tax thief to leave and the pornography, a pornography addict to leave or the guy that went to the casino on Friday night or the single adult that, that hooked up with somebody at the gas lamp on Friday night. Anybody is welcome at this church to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone? Well, I just don't want my kids around different people. Then move to Kansas. Sorry if you're from Kansas. I mean, no disrespect. <laughs> Some people from Kansas here. I don't mean disrespect. There, you get the idea. Nebraska, okay, Nebraska. I don't know if I have anybody from Nebraska. If you're from Nebraska, don't send me an email either. <laughs> Please just tell me. I'll wear Nebraska red next week for you. Paul is trying to be super clear here. And I'm trying to be super clear because the scripture is clear. And we live in a day and age in America today where there's just so much division based on non-essential issues. Everybody is upset with everybody about everything. Sometimes I just go on social media to see what people say. Oh, my word. Even people in our church. You're that wrapped up in this, bro. Why are we, we're so divided that somebody has a different opinion and the first thing that we have to do is try to attack them and manipulate them and we don't give people an opportunity to be saved and think a little bit different. And Paul is saying, stop it with your, with the arrogance thinking that you are better than they simply because of who you are, or where you're from or the education you have. The ground is level at the cross. Now, we understand that there might be some societal implications and we have to disciple and teach and train people and help people have victory in their life. This text is not talking about sanctification in the moment, at this very moment. This text is talking about salvation, that the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ is available to all mankind everywhere at all times. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more, I'm talking about Adam's sin, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign 
in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. By the sin, verse number 18, by the sin of Adam, everybody is judged. We're all sinners because of Adam. That's why verse number 12 of chapter 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Because of Adam's sin, all men are judged. Even so, by the righteousness of Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Verse number 30, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Justified, where we looked at last week in verse number 24, to become judicially vindicated as having complied with the requirements of the law of God. God treats us as one old evangelist said, just as if I'd never sinned. It's a great helpful idea there. That's the idea of the word justified that God now treats us because of our faith in Christ alone as though we are completely vindicated. All of the requirements of God's law, he looks at us as though we have kept them because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith. God is going to justify the Jews by faith. You can be, here, here's what he says. If you're a Jew, you're justified by faith. And then he goes on to say, and uncircumcision through faith. Don't get lost in the, tr- in the prepositions. They don't, by and through, they don't really mean any, dis- there's no distinction there. That if you're a Jew, Circumcision, you're justified by faith. If you're a Gentile, not a Jew, you're you're justified by faith. God cares about you. So there's another point that has to be considered. And that point is this. That God is not... When we say within the church there needs to be no isms, no racism, sexism, any of the others, there needs not be that salvifically that the gospel is for everyone. Understand God looks at you not in a desire to, to judge, let me rephrase it, in a desire to destroy you, but he looks at you with a desire to save you. He wants mankind to be saved. The Bible says God is not willing that anyone should perish, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's God's desire that you would be saved. That's his desire. And then notice verse number 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. So we understand the foolishness of bragging about our salvation and we understand the arrogance of thinking God only cares about people like me. And finally, in verse number 31, we substantiate the importance of the law by faith. The question is being asked, do we make void the law? Make void, do we make the law worthless or useless or ineffective or pointless? Do we make the 613 commandments of the law pointless because of faith? Paul says, no, 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 because we put strong confidence in Jesus Christ, does it make the law of no value? Because here's what some people were gonna say. They were gonna say, now that I have faith in Christ, I can do whatever I want. Now I'm free to do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, because I have faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, that's an idea that people have even to this day. 
I can live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do because I'm saved. I'm saved. Did you believe in eternal security, Pastor? So I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. And who are you or anybody else to tell me that I have to be obedient? So Paul is saying, do we make void the law? Do we make the law worthless because of our faith? And this is what he says, God forbid. God forbid, it's the strongest negative Greek word there is. It's like he's screaming at the top of his lungs, of course not, or perish the thought. No, in no way would we ever do that. As a matter of fact, he contrasts that, God forbid, with we establish the law. We bring validity to the law. We confirm the law through faith. We give the law, if you will, merit, value, Some people would say we put teeth into it. The law now has meaning. No, faith doesn't destroy or void or make it worthless. Faith faith brings value. It is establishing the law. Look with me, if you would, over at Romans chapter 7, just a few pages to the right. Verse number 7. What shall we, this, this argument's going to keep going until about chapter 8, basically. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Again, you hear that phrase. No, 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 not at all. No way. Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Or if nobody told me what the law said, then it was dead to me. I didn't know I was wrong. I mean, that's what he's saying. Verse number eight. Except the law said, thou shalt not covet. I didn't know the lust was wrong, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. I thought lust was fine until the law said you shouldn't covet. Verse number nine, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. The point of the commandment, the point of the law is life, is to bring life, but I found it to be death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Let me illustrate this. Um, I don't, I enjoy driving. Sometimes I have to travel to speak other places or whatever. And used to, you'd try to fly just about anywhere you could go, but because of the nature of flying and canceled flights and all of that, I normally have to leave a day early and I, I try to plan a flight the day after the event to come home. And and because uh, of canceled flights and all that. So if it's within like a five to seven hour range, I, I will almost always drive. I, I don't necessarily like driving that far, but I, you know, you just don't get a, a canceled car or whatever. And, and so I, I will normally try to drive. And sometimes I'm driving in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I don't know the speed limit. Well, this is more true. My car now puts the speed limit on the speedometer, so I can never claim ignorance, and I hate that. I've tried to turn that feature off many times. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm going to buy me an old car next time. And, um, but you're driving, and have you ever been in this spot where you're like driving and you don't know the speed limit? 
Debbie and I were one time in Arizona, and we were, I don't remember where we were driving, but we were driving through the hills of Arizona, just having fun, driving around there, and she was talking, and I was listening, and say, what were you talking about? I don't know, it's just how it normally goes. And she was talking, and I was listening, and I'm driving and driving, and all of a sudden, a state trooper comes flying up behind me. And he's flashing his lights. And I think, oh, there's something going on down the road. Because I look down at my speedometer. And, and I'm not going that fast, like 80 or 75 or whatever. And so I pull over and he pulls in behind me. And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well. And he comes up and he says, do you know how fast you were going? And I said, um, um, around 75. He goes, yep. Do you know the speed limit? I could say this with honesty back then because my car didn't tell me. I said, no, I thought everything was 75 in Arizona, which I believed. He goes, nope, on this road for a two-mile section, it's 55 miles an hour. And I said, yeah, <laughs> that stinks. <laughs> Honey, we're not eating tonight, <laughs> and we're going to go home early. <laughs> and he said, "Where?" and I remember this like it was yesterday. I should have told the 830 service this. I forgot it. But he said, where did you come from? from how did you get to this road and I said oh back there about a, a mile we turned right on the road and we came up here I said I, I said I'll be honest with you sir uh, I I honestly I said uh, I I'm a Christian and I'm, I'm certainly not lying but I never saw a speed limit sign he said oh he goes he goes you know what and I told him I was a pastor he goes you know what pastor he said there aren't any speed limit signs if you turn right off that main road onto here he said but the speed limit is 55 and I said well I guess I'm gonna get a ticket and he goes, okay, give me your information. <laughs> oh. So I gave him Debbie's information, and, <laughs> and uh, he walked back to his car, and he comes up, and he said, can you step out of the car? Let me just tell you, when a cop tells you to step out of the car, that's never fun. And uh, we stepped out of the car, and, and we just started talking. He goes, hey, just so you know, I'm a believer, and I thought, great, and he's talking, and I'm trying to, you know, because I'd see, you know, a couple hundred dollar ticket, and traffic school, and all these other things, you know, and because 20 miles an hour, I mean, that's, that's pretty, you know, you don't want to get caught that, at least 19, and, and so we're just talking, and he goes, hey, just, just, just so you know, I'm going to give you a warning, and I was like, thank you, he said, but... The speed limit here is 55. He goes, now, mile up the road, it turns 65. I don't want to catch you doing 75, Pastor. It's like, so I literally said this. Now, where do you patrol? He said, this area. Said, okay, good. I'll speed later. And um, <laughs> we laughed and had a good time about it. But I didn't know. No lie, I wasn't really trying to break the law. I didn't know. Here's what Paul said about the law. Chapter 7. If, if I hadn't known the law, I wouldn't know that what I was doing was sin. I wouldn't know that what I was doing was wrong. I wouldn't know that what I was doing was evil. It's Friday night. Judith and I were on vacation this week, and we had one of my favorite beaches in all of the world. There's a little beach in central California, right by Solvang, just west of Solvang a little bit called the Gaviota State Beach. If you ever get to go to Gaviota, you ought to stop by the beach. It's beautiful. There's an Amtrak train that runs over the top of it. It's, it's quintessential like 60s California. And, 
And the water up there is super cold. I don't know what they do in L.A., but the, it, it's a condition of their heart, I guess. But the water just is freezing cold compared to San Diego. The water was probably like 60 degrees. And um, Judith, now some of you are like, oh, that's nothing for me. Okay, big boy, great. I'm just telling you, for me, I like warm showers. I take cold ones, but I mean, it was cold. And so on Friday, we had done some stuff and then, then we went to the beach and we were just hanging out for about five hours and, and nobody was there. It's just me and Judith basically. And we'd get in the beach at, or in the water every once in a while. And before we left, I got in the water and man, I'm telling you, I got cold. You know, when you get in the water and you get really cold and you just can't warm up. And so that's what we did. And I got cold and I just couldn't warm up. I had a goose bump on my leg. Judith saw it. It was scary. Didn't quite know what to do with it. And so we drove back to the motel and the, or the hotel that we're staying at. And, and as I'm walking by in, in Buellton where we were staying, I saw that the pool was open. Nobody was in there and the hot tub was open. I said, Hey Jude, I'm going to go jump in the hot tub. You want to come? She goes, I got to go do some stuff dad. And, and she said, but I'll come in a little while. So I went and jumped in the hot tub and then she came down and we're watching strongman competitions on our phone in the hot tub because it was the rogue invitational. And I know nobody cares, but me, but it was awesome. And so it's a cool world when you can be in the hot tub watching other people lift heavy objects. And so we're watching that. And then about halfway through, the, the, it's been about 30 minutes or so. I said, you about ready to get some knees? She goes, yeah. And so because it's a daddy-daughter, we would just kind of like whoever wanted to go first in the bathroom, guys go. I'm like, do you want to go first? You want me? She goes, why don't I go first? I said, okay, I'll be up there in about 15 minutes. And, and so, you know, be out of there. Because if you don't give a 25-year-old girl a time limit in the bathroom, she'll be in there all night long. Can I get an amen? And just, I don't know what the deal is in there. It's like there's a special altar with Jesus or something and so I'll be up there soon and and so I'm sitting in the hot tub just kind of giving her time and this this guy comes over and in a French accent he says uh hey um do you mind if I get in the hot tub which I immediately said where are you from he said, why'd you ask? Because you asked to get in the hot tub if you were from America you just like got in and sat right next to me I mean it's United States, we just wouldn't care. He's like, oh, no, 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 it's your hot tub. I'm like, yes, and my hotel. And, uh, and so he sat down and, and uh, we started talking. I, was, uh, I understand that all men are sinners and I felt conviction of the Lord as I do every time I'm around lost people to share the gospel with him. I may be the only person that ever shares the gospel with him. No, let me say it again. I may be the only person that ever shares the gospel with him. And so I knew I had a, a, a command, whether I, I'm gifted at it or not, I'm commanded to share the gospel. And so he told me he was from France, told me his name. And, and I said, well, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, I like to talk to people from all over the world what, about questions. I said, let me ask you a question. What do you think about Jesus Christ and the Bible? And he basically said this, he said, I have no real thoughts about it. I grew up Catholic. I've never really thought about it. I've never been to church in my life. I really don't know anything about Jesus Christ. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I've never heard the Bible. I mean, I know what it is for sure. And I've heard Jesus is a good guy. And we had big celebrations in France. He goes, but I live in San Francisco. I've lived in America five years. In five years, he had never heard the gospel one time. He knew nothing about sin. He knew nothing about salvation. He knew nothing at all. So you got two dudes in a hot tub talking about things of eternal value. It's kind of creepy. And so... 
I began to talk to him and I said, do you know what a sin is? And he looked at me with a blank stare. He's like, no, I, I have no idea. What's a sin? So as I began to define a sin and then to tell him what sins were, Romans chapter 7, verse 9, it came alive to him, sin revived, and I died. It's like you could see him doing this. Oh, that's a sin? Oh. And he went like this. Works for a, a very, very large, he's very well-connected and very, um, works for a very influential social media company. And he's like, oh, I didn't know that was a sin. Yeah. Sin revived when sin was made aware. And what happens? Verse nine, sin revived and I died. What do you mean I died? I realized I was on my way to hell. I realized that because of my sin, I was hopeless before God. He said, well, what'd you do with the guy, Pastor? Share the gospel with him. First time he'd ever heard it, shared the gospel with him, got his email address. I figured it'd be really creepy to ask a dude for his phone number in a hot tub. <laughs> so I didn't. I'm like, hey, do you have an email that you check occasionally? And he told me, and so I wrote, he goes, can you write it down? I put it in my phone. And he's like, okay. So I'm going to witness to him via email. But once he heard what sin was, it changed his whole complexion. Sin revived, and I died. That's why it's foolish to think we bring anything to the table. Well, what do we do by faith? Well, we substantiate the law. We establish it when we trust in Christ by faith, understanding that we are sinners and we accept Christ as our Savior. You see, here's the big idea. There's no room for pride in performance only joy in our justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no room for pride. You bring nothing to the table. I'm saved because my parents or grandpa or grandma or whatever. No, no. No room for pride. No room for pride. Only joy in the fact that the King of kings and Lord of lords justified us because of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we accept him by grace through faith in Christ alone. According to the National Geographic, the kids' website, which I like a little better than the regular one, the pufferfish can inflate itself into a ball-sized object to evade predators, sometimes known as a blowfish. These clumsy little swimmers are not very adept at getting away from predators. So they just fill their stomachs up with water, sometimes air, and they blow them up several times their normal size. The pufferfish contains a tremendous, the average, most pufferfish contain a tremendous amount of toxin, 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. 
There's enough poison in the average puffer fish to kill 30 adults, and there's no known antidote. Like the puffer fish, human beings often blow themselves up in pride and arrogance. They try to make themselves look bigger, better, stronger than they are. And pride is toxic. It can be toxic as application to marriages, to churches, to friendships. And it will even keep some of you from coming to Christ. Some of you are here today and you will not accept Jesus Christ or you have not accepted Jesus Christ because of pride. Can I encourage you today? There's a great old Bible teacher, John Stott said, Pride is your greatest enemy, and humility is your greatest friend. Pride is your greatest enemy, and humility is your greatest friend. If you're not saved today, if you don't know Christ, be humble enough to accept him. If you're a Christian here today, and God is speaking to your heart about something, be humble enough to submit to it. Now, the passage is talking about salvation, but we would be remiss not to make application to the believer. Submit to it. You used to walk with God. You don't walk with him as closely as you used to. Why? Pride. I'm not trying to make more out of it than what it is. Just, just pride. That's why it's foolish to boast about what we bring to the table. We bring nothing to the table. And we're not excluded. We're included, as all men are, because of the grace of Jesus Christ. We don't make the law worthless because of our faith. We actually establish it. We don't make the law worthless because we live for Christ and attend church three times a week so we and serve him and tithe. And all. We don't, we're not, that's not a, a point of like legalism, as some people say. It's just establishing that God's word has merit and value in the life of the believer. That's all that it is. Like, no, I, I bring value. I, I'm establishing what the scripture commands me to do. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, accept him today. If you're a believer here today and God's working on your heart about something, be humble enough to submit to him. And if God's not working on your heart about something, that's when you really ought to be scared. Because he's working daily on us to make us all more like Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.